Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by The Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Alongside me is commissioning editor and erstwhile pronunciation guru Thea Lenarduzzi. Her foodie credentials shall be tested to the uttermost as we discuss later the idea of cannibalism. Thea, how are you? <laughs> Fine. Slightly nervous. <laughs> You've never eaten human flesh, have you, Thea? No. I think if they, I think if they did open a in Shoreditch, a kind of human flesh and toast restaurant, people would go to mm. it. Well, yeah, placenta smoothies placenta. on your way to work. Do they, does that exist? I don't know. Some people do do that. We're going to be talking about placentas <laughs> later. So do... Uh, do you stay here yeah. for that. Come for the literature, stay for the placentas <laughs> is the motto of this podcast. Make sure you are following us on Twitter if you like that sort of thing, at FBFM underscore podcast, and do review us on iTunes. And I always try and offer you a special subscription here. So Google TLS subscriptions, type pod1 in the offer code section. You can get six issues of the TLS for £6. Coming up on the show this week, Stephen Burt has edited a new collection of poetry with the slightly nauseating title of The Poem Is You, 60 Contemporary American Poems and How to Read Them. Rory Waterman has reviewed it and she'll be sharing the highlights with us. When does modern philosophy begin? Is a question asked by a book by A.C. Grayling, who now seems to spend his days asking increasingly irascible questions on Twitter about Brexit. Our philosophy editor, Tim Crane, will tackle this thorny subject for us. Modern philosophy, that is, not Brexit. And we should also consider the history of cannibalism, following our review by Barbara King of Eat Me by Bill Schutt. She will be able to explain much more in stomach-turning detail if we let her. This may feature the banana slugs who eat each other during sex. Yeah. Poetry, philosophy and the desire of humankind to consume itself and banana slugs eating each other during sex. Don't say you don't get all of the major subjects covered in this podcast. Stephen Burt, one of America's most influential poetry critics, has gathered together 60 poems published between 1981 and 2015 as a means of understanding the enormous and varied metaphorical geography of the United States of America. Burt wants us to try out or try on or simply encounter the identities, the kinds of language and the ways to see the world that each poem opens up. The book's title, The Poem Is You, which is awful, is taken from the last line in the first poem collected, Paradoxes and Oxymorons by John Ashbury. 
Other poets included are Richard Wilbur, Lucille Clifton, Yusuf Komonyaka and Adrienne Rich. Rory Waterman has reviewed the book for us, noting that Burt's egalitarian collecting principle is based on the fact that the poems are American and recent and that the editor thinks they matter, usually in social terms as well as by dint of inherent poetic skill, which is an interesting notion in itself to which we must return. Rory joins Thea and me now. Rory, should we forgive Stephen Burt the buttock-clenching awkwardness of the book's title? Yeah, it is buttock-clenching and awkward, isn't it? Um, (laughs) But I was born in 1981. The first poem in the book was born in 1981 as well. So the poem is me seemed a kind of, you know, a title that almost referred to me. Really. <laughs> that's um, rather brilliant, that, that, that yeah, all things I, th- I think that's why you did it. Because it's not just the, the title, it's the subtitle, you know, American Poems and How to Read Them. Is, is that just trying to be trendy? I, I can't quite work. Or, or, or do you generally, this is actually a, a guide, a user's manual to reading 60 poems? It's exactly the sort of thing that gets my back up. 60 American poems and how to read them, as though, as though to read contemporary American or presumably British, etc. poetry, um, we need the professional help of, you know, Professor Burt at Harvard University. The kind of prescriptiveness of that title isn't, isn't really the way Stephen Burt approaches his, his essays accompanying the poems at all. He comes across more like a, a kid in a sandpit, really. He, he loves thinking about poems and he wants us to do it for ourselves. And there's nothing really prescriptive about the book. And in fact, it's kind of anti-prescriptive. You know, you, you refer in the review about why they matter in social terms. And I'm interested yeah. in the idea of a poem as sort of socially useful. What does he mean by that? Are there exact, is it to help us think in a certain way? Is it to help make yeah. strides in terms of equality? Or, or I couldn't quite work out what, what is a social use of a poem. The book's kind of interested in how we might apply poems to life situations. I, I think of someone like Alan de Botton and his um, philosophical books. Bert doesn't, he doesn't adopt the tone of a self-help book or anything like that, but he, but he wants us to see how poetry can be of use to us in, in practical terms. So, for example, he'll, he'll veer away from discussing a poem to say something universalised and, to be honest, sometimes a bit pat. So, for example, poetry brings us together. I think I mentioned in the review is something he says, well, it might do, but it also might not bring us together. But this book isn't art for art's sake, and and he wants us to see poetry as, as a relevant art, a contemporary art. So, for example, he discusses a poem by Adrienne Rich, which repeats, I know you are reading this poem. I can give you an example, actually. I know you are reading this poem listening for something, torn between bitterness and hope, turning back once again to the task you cannot refuse. I know you are reading this poem because there is nothing else left to read. There where you have landed, stripped as you are. So... The poem repeats this, I know you were reading this poem, before presenting the, the you is someone else each time in, in a sort of difficult situation somehow. And, and Bert uses this poem to discuss the pressures of modern life and how disconnected or, I suppose, unconnected people can feel. Who's the audience for this then, Rory? Because is this uh, American college graduates? Is it American college students to help them with their work? Or is it people who think they like poetry but probably don't know any modern poets or feel a bit... Frightened of the notion of modern or contemporary poetry, is this sort of trying to sort of lure them in gently? Well, according to the press release, uh, the poem is you will appeal to poets, teachers and students, but it is intended especially for readers who want to learn more about contemporary American poetry, but who have not known where or how to start. Quite well, yeah, all. that's everyone. It's, this, this, po- this book is for you folks, is what that press release says, <laughs> but why shouldn't it? Um, uh, and did anything pleasantly surprise you with that in mind? Have you had to recommend one or two poems that... 
maybe you weren't familiar with or, yeah. or, or, or the context sort of presented itself. Oh, that's, that's interesting. What would, you, what would you recommend? Most of the poems in the book, I think, are at least interesting. And sometimes the choices he makes, particularly with the more famous poets, are, are unusual. So K. Ryan's Emptiness, for example, which is a, a wonderful poem and one I probably have read, but I can't remember it. Very short poem. Emptiness cannot be compressed, nor can it fight abuse. Nor is there an endless west hosting elk, antelope, and the tough cayuse. This is true also of the mind. It can get used. And it does the thing that Kay Ryan so often does, which is sort of universalised. We don't find out much about her at all, but um, we certainly find out what she thinks or her speaker thinks about something. Um, but it's very short. It's, uh, typically, she, she writes these bookmark poems, doesn't she? But this is more just a little block, really, a little blob. So, we, so we'll have to leave it here, Robert. I suppose we've been a little bit sniffy about, about the title, but what you're kind of suggesting in the press release and all of that is a little glib. But if you sort of fight through that, there's a chance to uncover things that we might not have read or look at poems and poets in a different decontextualised fashion. That's something to be applauded, I presume. Is Absolutely. It? Uh, another... another um, first thought I had is um, that it has the same number of poems as Ruth Padell's book, The Poem and the Journey. And, and both of these books use journeys as a metaphor, or at least traversing geography as a metaphor. So Padell's journey is the journey of life, right? But for Stephen Burt, he, he compares our reader experience of American poetry to being lost in the vastness of the landscape, the American landscape. So he says, contemporary American poetry is an image of America. An enormous and varied geography whose high points and must-sees can seem very far apart. And he's trying to sort of sew them all together. Padel tends to stick to the mainstream, and Burt goes all over the place, and he's just a different kind of critic, you know? And he's that's a very, a... very good critic with a very broad mind. And that's something to be applauded. Rory Waterman, thank you very much indeed. Thanks a lot. Um, it makes me think the extent to which poetry has to bear a big burden of claims about it you know it's not just a thing to, to read and think quietly about it then becomes something that is a user's guide to the world it's very easy to sort of grand claims to be placed upon it i'm not always certain that's the best thing that can ever happen to it no absolutely not i think anything if, if you're constantly asking it to justify its its place its point you're putting a, a pressure on it that you don't that you don't do for novels really do you no but, but in, in a funny way though collecting a very wide number of poets, 60, even if you then do put, place individual burdens on them, on each poem, at least that variety itself becomes a value, doesn't it? That you're seeing things not in the context they originally presented, you're seeing them that you may never have seen before, and, and that sort of variety of it is to be applauded, I think. Mm, definitely, and I think also possibly we went sort of straight in there um, and honing, it, honing in on, um, on the idea of them having to have a use value, but the use value is is very varied and uh, fluid in its definition, I suppose. I'm if, suspicious if are... of utility. I'm, I'm, poetry and utility should almost be a paradox, an oxymoron, don't you think? Sort of, but I think I, I think probably use is just it's just an ugly uh, and misleading word. I think it has too much. It carries too much weight itself. Yeah. As does exercise. You know, so you could say these maybe if they're exercises in emotion yeah, and how yeah, to think and how to feel then. You know that's that's just as loaded a word, but they 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 are they doing something to us. It shouldn't put people off, I suppose, is the point that we're, we're exactly we're getting that to. we're yeah trying to make. <laughs> yeah, the poem is you sixty contemporary American poems and how to read them by Stephen Burt.
Next, returning to cannibalism, so to speak. Most of us would agree with the definition set out by Bill Shutt in his new book, Eat Me, that cannibalism is the act of one individual of a species consuming all or part of another individual of the same species. We'd also tend to agree that it's wrong, and pretty much the preserve of often controversial fictions like the new film Raw, about a bloodthirsty young vet. But as well as clear instances of cannibalism in the non-human animal kingdom, among, say, tadpoles or chimpanzees, there are plenty of grey areas that might lead us to see cannibals on every corner. Babies, or those of a nervous or distracted disposition foremost among them. Although that's probably not quite what Claude Lévi-Strauss meant when he said, we are all cannibals. Here to explain why a study of cannibalism is much more complicated than that initial definition suggests is Barbara J. King, Emeritus Professor of Anthropology at the College of William and Mary and the author of Personalities on the Plate, which is not a recipe book for cannibals. Barbara has written about Schutt's book in this week's TLS and joins us now. Um, Hello, Barbara. Hello, thank you for having me. Could you begin perhaps by assuaging the fears of anyone who, since my admittedly sensational intro, has begun eyeing their baby with suspicion? I mean, Schutt is more interested in the history of cannibalism than he is in any present-day instances. Well, he's interested in both. You know, I am very surprised by his decision to, for example, fly to Texas, a state here in the United States, to embark on a dinner expedition that has him eating uh, placenta and talking about the involvement of placenta eaters in present-day cannibalism. So he is interested in both present-day and history. Um, Surely he talks a lot about prehistory, including Neanderthals and early human societies. So he really ranges through the whole gamut. Neanderthals are, I mean, there's there's definitive proof of them having having eaten their kind. Uh, Pretty definitive, I would say. There's always a great deal of debate in the paleoanthropological community about how to interpret evidence. But at sites in France, for example, there are bones of both red deer and Neanderthals that were very clearly cut up in ways that suggest they were eaten by Neanderthals and other sites in France as well. So it seems very likely that we shouldn't try to come to a different conclusion about the eating of red deer and the eating of Neanderthals if the evidence is in fact quite uh, similar. You know, there's a lot to suggest that in certain times and at certain places in our own history, there were taboos against cannibalism, and at other times, and Neanderthals may be an example of this, learned cannibalism, where it was practiced quite enthusiastically and without taboo at all. And what is it that Schutt is driving at with his subtitle? Is is that part of it, where he, where he distinguishes natural from unnatural cannibalism? I mean, I wonder how helpful that is, for one thing, because it, it seems as though it's, it does something of a disservice to the complexity of chimpanzee behavior, for one thing. Oh, I think it does a disservice, yes. I think that it's very hard to claim any of the behavior that he describes as unnatural. After all, what we do, or even other animals do, via learning, via cultural custom, via sort of society decision that it's fine, seems very natural to me. I'm not sure what would really constitute unnatural cannibalism. But one of the best points that Schutt makes in the book is that we shouldn't think of it as just something, you know, the exotic other does in some far-flung society now or at some pocket of time in the past, that in fact it's been very well distributed throughout history in 
all kinds of societies that there was a great deal, for example, of medical cannibalism in Europe and in England, where people of all sort of walks of life from, as he puts it, kings to commoners, would ingest parts of bodies, fluids, powders, body parts, to combat some sort of illness or disease. And this was entirely learned and entirely accepted without very much pushback at all. And of course, the the anecdote with which you opened um, about eating placenta in in Texas is very much a modern iteration of that. Yeah, exactly. And is that unnatural in some way? Um, Is it any more unnatural than his wonderful descriptions of what banana slugs do or spiders or, as you said, polar bears and chimpanzees? Uh, You know, I'm not sure. What what do banana slugs do? (laughs) Oh, banana slugs. Well, when they get together and copulate and as they try to disengage from each other, one partner may very avidly try to chew off the other's penis because they're locked together (laughs) through their little banana slug genitals. He's quite wonderful in in describing the animal world. He describes spiders, and there's a particular type of spider where females are consuming parts of the male as they copulate. And then as this goes on, Shutt writes, quote, the female wraps her shredded partner in silk, eventually hoovering up his liquefied innards. So, you know, he's really good at this. Uh, his description <laughs> is his forte, no doubt. And I, I don't want to, to, to dwell on bananas, but what would be the, the, I suppose, the reason for that? What would be the natural explanation for why that took place? Is it because it's a handy source of protein for a, a, a soon-to-be mother who needs it? Is there, a, what, would the, what would be the, 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 the reasoning behind this becoming a sort of commonplace natural practice? Oh, I really can't speak to you about the ins and outs of banana slugs. It seemed to me as if the two were just trying to get apart from each other. But in any case, in the animal kingdom, what is the why? Okay, yes, it can be a quick source of nutrition that can be readily available and help animals grow and mature. It can also just be due to, for example, um, a male trying to eat infants of a female in order to bring that female back into reproductive availability. Not so for banana slugs, but true for lots of mammals. So one reason why chimpanzee males may kill and eat infants, of course, is because it allows them to copulate more readily with a fertile um, female who will no longer nurse her infant and therefore come back into ovulation more rapidly. One thing that Shudd is very good at is discussing the evolution of cannibalism in different species, suggesting that we really need to look at local factors in each case, you know, go case by case, go region by region, and um, does this in his book through lots of really cool examples. Can you give us one of those examples? Yeah, he goes out into the American West and he's talking about what happens in a certain type of toad. Let me see, it's a spadefoot toad. So he's out in Arizona. And it turns out that there are two types of these tadpoles in a pond. Some are really big. They have big jaw muscles, big tails, big bodies. Other ones are smaller. The big ones are the ones that have been eating their peers, and they're doing this at quite a rapid rate. And the reason Shad explains is because the ponds where they live dry out really quickly. And if you can get that extra source of protein and they can grow up more quickly, they can accelerate their developmental process and they can get out of that pond before it you know, vanishes and hurts them developmentally. And that's evolution. So the um, small tadpoles that eat their peers seem to do better over time than the ones that don't. And I like that. I think that's very yeah, well explained. I guess I guess the difference is, is perhaps that whereas tadpoles couldn't 
uh, escape their immediate surroundings and, and, and therefore not have to compete with, with their brethren. Right. We were, as humans, we were able to travel and, and, and go to you know, other villages and not have to compete directly in that, in that sense. Yeah, and this gets back to the distinction that he makes that I found really illuminating between sort of forced cannibalism, where, you know, you're really eating somebody of your own species to survive in one way or another. Um, And we can think of all kinds of famous examples like the Donner Party in the 19th century American West. These pioneers who were trying to get to California got stuck in the Sierra Nevada mountains, and we all know the story. They started eating each other. That is a forced type of survival cannibalism. But some of the other examples that Shut mentions, and I have alluded to some of them, are just, you know, learned. We just do this because it is what we do. One of the most striking examples he discussed um, comes from China, um, not, of course, present day, but historical Chinese culture in something called uh, filial piety, where out of respect, some younger individuals would, you know, really apparently lop off bits of the body and offer them to their elders. And this was culturally sanctioned, and this happened a lot. And it would involve limbs, and sometimes it involved eyes, and quite surprising to me, really. So that we need to understand, of course, that with human culture, there are all kinds of other factors that work that quite apparently, you know, are not going to apply to spiders, banana plug, slugs and, and polar bears. And presumably in the end, it's a social taboos are created because that's how societies make sure that people do not go around on a widespread rate killing and eating people. There has to be an imposition at some level uh, by society of saying that is considered to be an acceptable behaviour for that society to survive. As with incest. A lot of times, yeah, but as he points out, not always. Now, clearly, some of the examples that he's given as the one I just mentioned in historical Chinese culture never really got out of control, right? This wasn't as if there were hordes of people, you know, doing this. So, right, presumably that the social taboo does come in if the practice becomes uncontrollable, if it becomes threatening perhaps to those in power, I might reason or predict. That's interesting stuff. Barbara, thank you so much for, for talking us through um, uh, all of that. Uh, the book is called Eat Me, A Natural and Unnatural History of Cannibalism. And, and Barbara J. King, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I have just seen, barely hours ago, Thea, <laughs> Raw by uh, Julia Ducourneau, mm-hmm. which is about cannibalism. It's about a, a female, young female vet in Belgium. Belgium is the most terrifying landscape I've ever seen in a film. It's set in this university, a veterinary university in Belgium, which is kind of this weird post-apocalyptic place. Um, what's interesting is the, the cannibalism, and this is kind of what Schutt's saying a bit, there are grades of it. Mm. So the woman eats her hair. She bites her fingernails. Mm. Um, she, she nibbles at people during sex, but not fatally, always. So there is this sort of, you, you, you see to a certain extent, because I wouldn't regard eating a placenta as cannibalism. Or breastfeeding. Yeah, yeah. but there seems to be a, a grade of it, which is, I think, mm. what makes the film terrifying. Which, what, which must be why we're so fascinated with it, because it's, so, it's sort of a slippery slope. Yeah. And, and you're, you're all, you know, because there's such a rich history of, of and, and as Barbara points out in the piece, there's such a rich history of, of literature making reference to cannibals and... Yeah obviously on film as, as what we're talking about now. And there are so many portrayals of it and, and they're always surrounded by, you know, controversy and is it more than just a metaphor? Or, yeah, and blood, you know, you know what, and then what you purposes it's And you look at blood, like you say that she talks about people drinking blood, but blood transfusions and 
Uh, there are moments where you ingest part of another person, mm. which is which you wouldn't regard as cannibalism. But if you were to try and get an absolute definition of it, mm. you probably would include that that as well. And it's this sort of anyway. Everyone's had that conversation with if a group of us were were left marooned, who would get eaten first? Yeah, because that's seen as something utterly plausible, even mm. though it happens very very rarely. So I think the trick in the film, I recommend I, the film is very good. It's very weird. Mm. That's the nagging kind of horror of it, which is that although what actually happens becomes quite extreme, it starts relatively mildly. Mm. And then, and the other point about it, which I think is interesting, is about food. The, the woman in the film is a vegetarian, and then you see lots of meat being eaten, mm. and then she's, she rejects uh, animal food to begin with. She's a vet, so there's animal carcasses everywhere. But you are invited to consider the question, mm. which we've talked about on this podcast before, what is the distinction between animal meat and human meat, it's still taking another life, which is kind of the Morrissey position, mm. taking another life for the purpose of of feeding yourself could be seen to be morally reprehensible, whether it's an animal or, or a human. Mm. And add to that the fact that to eat is one of the most intimate things that you can do because you're taking something from outside of your body and you're putting it into it and yeah. ingesting it. Um, it's interesting because there was um, an interview with the director of Raw in, I think it was in GQ, and uh, it was pointed out to her by the interviewer that there is this recent trend of, of women film directors yeah. uh, using cannibalism and vampirism as a, as a kind of a metaphor for coming of age and the difficulties of learning to know oneself sexually and things like that. Um, and she just said very, very simply, well, don't, don't you think it's quite interesting that women are tearing apart their own flesh? <laughs> yeah. You know, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> the feminism of it is really interesting mm. because in the, you know, she has sex with a guy and... I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but at one point she says, why didn't you stop me? Mm. So the sort of the, the feminist angle in this whole thing that's directed by, by, a, by a woman, the woman is the central figure. And she's incredibly powerful as a result of being this, this, this cannibal uh, and, and dominating. And, and so it is interesting. There's a, there's a Netflix show with Drew Barrymore, which has, yeah. a, has, a, has a, I think, a cannibal, a female cannibal. Mm. The idea of cannibalism becoming a sort of feminist metaphor yeah, but, seems to be really intriguing. You're ruled by your own desires. You can't control those desires. So who who really is in control, I suppose? Yeah, it's interesting. You'll like it. You like weird films as well, don't you? <laughs> yes. Yeah. You probably have a, br- a broader range than I have. but yeah. <laughs> well, Watch- I was going to say we should be talking about Cannibal Holocaust and, you know, all of the films. Yeah, well, go and see Raw. And when we've both seen it, let's have, a, let's have a, another okay. conversation. To be continued. To be continued. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. People may know AC Grayling as an angry ranter on Twitter refusing to accept the arrival of Brexit or as the founder of a pseudo-Oxbridge institution in the centre of London. But he is, of course, a philosopher. In this week's TLS, Stephen Nadler has reviewed Grayling's book, The Age of Genius, which seeks to pinpoint the moment in which the modern mind was born. Unlike other births, where the evidence is the shrieking and beslimed beautiful object before you, the birth of modern philosophy is less definite, more open to dispute. And who exactly was the father? is also a question to which there may be no clear-cut answer. Was it Descartes, John Locke, Spinoza, Hume, Hobbes, Bacon, or even perhaps Montaigne? Nadler notes, and this is essentially Grayling's thesis, that something very special happened in philosophy in the 17th century. There emerged new ways of thinking about the world and about the human being's place in nature, in society and in the cosmos. In Grayling's words, by the end of that century, the mind had become modern. Grayling calls this the greatest ever change in the mental outlook of humanity. Is that true? And is establishing the birth of modern thinking important? Tim Crane is the TLS philosophy editor, Knightbridge professor of philosophy at Cambridge University, and far too sensible to have his head turned by such hyperbole and simplification. Or is he? He joins Thea and me now. Tim, how are you? Hi, Stig. Thanks. I'm very well, thanks. Is it possible or is it useful to establish precisely when modern philosophy was born? Uh, no, I mean, not, not, I don't think so. Not precisely in the sense of, you know, within a few years or a few decades or something like that, or identify one work, which was the beginning of modern philosophy, I think. But I think that both Stephen Nadler and um, Anthony Grayling agree that there was this change in European thinking in the 17th century, which is what goes under the heading of modern. It's just there's no precise starting point And and a lot of the things that you know you might want to identify as the key founding text of modern philosophy are actually rather problematic. Um, before we get to the text, I suppose, are we effectively talking about the triumph of reason and empiricism of science over faith and, and superstition? Is that the switch that was, was, was flipped in the 17th century? I don't think it was as straightforward as that. I think two of the thinkers, of the three, the three thinkers who are often thought of as you know leading European modern philosophers, Descartes, Spinoza and Leibniz, they were all theists in a certain way. I mean, Spinoza in a rather eccentric way, but um, Leibniz and Descartes were religious believers. I think the decisive difference and the thing that identifies our age as continuous with the modern changes in the, in the 17th century is the, um, the role of science in understanding the world and the particular way that science formulates its principles. That's what I was going to ask, actually. I was going to say, I mean, if we can't talk about modern philosophy or the first modern philosopher, we can at least talk about new philosophy, can't we? And and, and then talk about yeah. what its characteristics are. I mean, any attempt to sum up is going to meet with counterexamples and objections. But I think if you wanted to sum up what counts as the modern worldview, I think it's this famous remark of Galileo's that God has written the book of the world in squares and circles. In other words, that the world is understood mathematically in terms of mechanical principles, 
uh, not in terms of the principles that the medieval philosophers and sort of proto-scientists employed. Those principles involved ideas like you know, purpose, that things in, in the world did what they did because they were supposed to do them. So you know, a stone fell to the ground because its natural place was to come to the ground. That whole way of thinking, which was based on the philosophy of Aristotle, uh, was overturned in, in the 17th century. Precisely when, who knows, but um, I love this remark of Galileo's. You know, God has written the book of the world in squares and circles because it, it's the mathematization of nature. And why did that? I mean, it's an interesting point there, then, because was that just a series of, of coincidental births of geniuses that effectively you had people like Galileo and then you had Descartes, you had Leibniz, you had Copernicus. What, what, why, why were these people thinking the way they were thinking at that time. Is there any way of telling that? Or is that just just sort of the, the fortuitous event? Yeah. The great man or great thinker theory of, of, of philosophical history would say, you know, you just have these geniuses that are born like Descartes and Galileo. And what's quite interesting is that, in, I mean, the general idea is that these these revolutions were going on outside the confines of the universities and they weren't supported i mean this is certainly grayling's idea anyways that they weren't at all su- supported yeah. by the church and the church obviously wasn't very happy about them is is that the case i mean and if so who is who is funding this kind of research well i think all these people were independent scholars universities were a different kind of thing in those days so um descartes was employed um, at the end of his life he was employed by queen christina of sweden to teach her philosophy. Leibniz was, was employed by all sorts of people. The Elector of Hanover worked as a courtier and a diplomat. And um, Spinoza had a very poor and, um, and sad life and worked as a lens grinder. So the universities weren't involved. That's certainly true. Anthony Grayling is someone, you know, who would want to use every opportunity he can to bash the bash religion, <laughs> bash Christianity. Yeah. Um, so I think he uses his book to do that. I think um, Stephen Nadler is somewhat critical of that in his review. And he says that a lot of recent scholarship has shown that the Catholic Church was not opposed to all scientific advances. No, I, I, scientific advances that were con- inconsistent with Christian doctrine. And that feels like a very fair counter-argument, although I think it must be said an institution that had a list of prohibited books that it regularly updated, which contained in it things which were just reasonable extensions of the human mind, has to expect a certain amount of criticism. I think so, but I, th- I think there's this kind of picture that, that Grayling is presenting in the book, um, as, as far as I can see. I mean, I'm basing this on Natalie's review. I think the, the picture is that there's reason and re- reason triumphed, triumphed over, you know, faith and the dark side, and um, and this led to the Enlightenment and liberal thinking and all the things that we value. Even in the context of the church, you, you had the church progressing from you know, burning people for for their or banning, exiling people for their for their beliefs, yeah. to then listing the works and, and putting a little note next to them saying, you know, until until it is proven wrong. So that yes. there's already yes, a change exactly, going exactly. on there. Yeah. I think this is hugely yeah. generous of us all to to, to, to to praise the Catholic Church for the limited number of burnings it took place when people said things like uh, uh, the correct views of the planetary system of the universe. I mean, I, I don't want to be too too kind, of, but I've noticed him. You, you are a great man because you're an atheist, I believe, but you do have a certain. I am. You, 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 when we've spoken about this on various occasions, you have a willingness and an, an interest in in comprehending the role of faith in human understanding. And, and you, and you can tell me if I've got this wrong, regard aspects of faith as an important part of our mental makeup, don't you? Yes, I do, yeah. I think, I think religion is probably the most central human phenomenon in some ways. I mean, I think it's one of the things that is common to all human societies, and I think this, this need for 
search for something else, the other and the transcendent, is something we have to understand if we want to understand humanity as a whole. You know, if we have that ambition to understand humanity as a whole, then we have to understand it. And I think we're not going to understand it if we, if we just think of it as a, as a sort of idiotic prejudice. But equally, I suppose we could say we talk about the other and community, which is a kind of integral part of, of religious thought. Can you make an argument that modern philosophy, the birth of that is also the birth of the individual, the sense of coherent self? Is that a fair summary of also something that happened, I suppose, during this same period? Yeah, that's a very interesting idea. I think that idea of the self and where that comes from, people often trace this to Descartes. I, again, I think there's a real danger of exaggeration here because when people like... Um, St. Thomas Aquinas were talking about the soul. You know, the soul is not a million miles away from the self. I mean, the soul is an individual. Um, the the every every person, every human being has a soul. The soul is the the form that forms their body, in a sense, in this Aristotelian conception. Um, and each of us is an individual soul. Now. If you want to understand what people mean by an individual soul, it can't be that far away from the idea of an individual self. I suppose the other striking thing is, Tim, is that the other, Descartes' method was to use doubt, wasn't it? To constantly doubt things yes. as a way of trying to explore what the actual truth was. And we're talking about yes. this in 2017, some three or four hundred years later. And a lot of these questions remain unanswered. The, the idea of the mind-body problem, which he was, of course, wrestling with, remains to be wrestled with now. Still, so there's a kind of yeah. if modern philosophy began in the 17th century, there's no sign of it ending anytime soon. I agree. In a way, those those questions are still the questions that are with us. But um, the mind-body question will be solved in in in, a, in about a month's time from in my forthcoming piece in the TLS. So, <laughs> will you undertake? Can, you can come on the podcast, and, and now you've got to make good that claim. The mind-body problem will okay. be solved in a month's okay. time. I will. I'll make good. At the moment, I'm just I'm just kind of intrigued by the idea of a postmodern philosophy. If if, if modern oh, philosophy God. did come, it's just ironic philosophy. Be awful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, exactly. That's what it is. Yeah. It'll be unbearable. Tim, thank you very much uh, indeed yeah. for joining oh, us today. Thanks, Dick. Thanks, thank for you. You. Bye. Thank you. Yeah. He is Bye. he is writing a piece on the mind body problem because um, I talked to him about it um, a while ago, and it's fascinating. All of this stuff, you know, the, the development of these these names we're talking about, they asked questions effectively that. Philosophy professors still spend their time debating, maybe because they're unanswerable. I would think so. I mean, I can't imagine there ever being a definitive answer to any of the main questions. Except in a month's time. Except in a month's time, of when, course. Uh, when going to be definitive Tim Crane de- <laughs> delivers his long-awaited piece. Yeah, Descartes asked the question, Tim Crane <laughs> shall answer it. And we, we have, will... I think, therefore I am, I am, therefore I think, and what next? And what next? <laughs> Tim Crane will... Um, will tell us. Um, I think that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Tim Crane, Barbara King and Rory Waterman. Do go to the-tls.co.uk to see this week's edition of the TLS, which includes reconsiderations of the Victorian figures of Sherlock Holmes and Dracula. The cover is a wonderful drawing by our resident artist, Darren Smith. There's myths and fairy tales from ancient Greece to medieval England and the new rise of Irish novelists. Tweet us at this podcast at FBFM underscore podcast with your comments and suggestions and join us next week where we shall, inter alia, consider the relationship between James Baldwin and the movies. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Cool. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.